The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we're joined by Tara Murhar. Tara grew up in Geelong, Australia, and spent her childhood and teenage years traveling alongside her mother, who is a lifelong flight attendant. Through these experiences, birthed her passion and love for aviation, and she knew from an early age that she would settle for nothing less than a career as a pilot. Before learning to fly, Tara continued to travel the world and eventually moved to New Zealand to work on the ski fields, but after two years abroad, realized it was time to come home to pursue her dream. Tara was accepted into the Sharp Airlines cadet class of 2017 and studied for two years at Moorabbin Airport, where she completed her commercial license and multi-engine instrument rating before moving on to the Metroliner as a first officer. She now lives and works in Launceston, Tasmania, flying among some of the most beautiful yet rugged scenery in Australia. Her job involves carrying freight, passengers, and lots of extremely cute dogs to the islands off the coast of Tasmania. Tara has high hopes for the future of aviation, and is determined to continue to develop herself into a well-skilled and professional airline pilot. I truly could not be more excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Tara. Hi, everyone. Hey, Laura. How you going? I am so glad that we've finally been able to make this happen. I think the time zone difference has been a new fun challenge for our show, so I'm so glad that you finally that we rather we were able to sort of put it all together and find a time that this worked for both of us. Oh, I'm so sorry for all the messing around. But yeah, no, thank you for putting up with me and persisting. I really appreciate it. And I'm really happy to be on here with you today. Well, we won't take up any more of your time than we need to. We'll jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Um, well, for me, my mum was actually a flight attendant with Qantas uh, while I was growing up. So Luckily enough, we, of course, were able to reap the staff travel benefits. Um, Mum would always take me on our trips, whether it was international or just domestic. And for me, that gave me a bit of an exposure to the airline. She would always take me up to the front in the cockpit and meet the pilots, see all the amazing buttons. And I was really, I was so young when this all started. But for me, I was just, it was a big wow factor. Um, And I think from then onwards, I can't really put an exact pin on when, but I just know that ever since I was a child, it was always, I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. And there was just nothing else that really got in my way. Um, And when I was around 17, just finished high school, I was accepted uh, into university to do a degree in aviation. However, My mum, being the wisest woman in the world, of course, told me that she didn't quite think I was ready. I needed to gain some more independence life experience, which right now I'm thanking her. But at the time, I was a little frustrated by that because I just wanted to go in, you know, horns are blazing and just start flying. Um, But long story short, I moved overseas to New Zealand for a few years. And then when I came back, I got a part-time job ground crewing for a helicopter company, which through that company is how I found out about the Sharp Airlines cadetship, which I was fortunate enough to be accepted into. And uh, so I started that cadetship in 2017 and I got my private license, my commercial license, my multi-engine instrument rating, completed all my Australian ATPL subjects 
in just shy of two years. And then I did my multi-crew certificate and basically jumped straight into the Metro for type rating, which took around, I think it was just shy of three weeks. And then moved to Lonnie in Tasmania and have been flying ever since then, really. So I know, I forget the exact figure, but I think it's close to around 70% of people working in aviation were exposed to the industry at first by a parent or sort of family friend. And I don't know if we've actually had that many guests so far on our show like uh, to sort of match that proportion uh, who've actually had that experience, but it would have been so cool to grow up and be able to go on trips with your parents. Oh, it was. And I'm... I'm so grateful that for that, you know, when I was younger, I definitely took it for granted. And then growing up, the more people I meet, the more people, uh, the more I realized, sorry, is how fortunate I really was. And that a lot of people haven't actually left their own country. And for me to have traveled so much at such a young age, I just, yeah, I really thank her for that and count my lucky stars. It was an amazing childhood. It really was. And I'm also sort of thinking again to sort of like your mother's wisdom of having me the foresight to say, okay, I'm going to take Tara up to the flight deck. We're going to say hi to all the pilots and see all the buttons. And then later on to suggest, you know, as, and as tough as it is to be a 17 year old girl being told, you don't have to just jump right on into it. You can just slow down how, how wonderful it was, I guess, to sort of in hindsight, receive that advice, even if it was hard in the moment, because you went to New Zealand, came back, and now here you are in, in a totally different trajectory than you would have maybe originally gone. Oh, definitely. I, I'm not even sure where I would be if, um, if, it, if I never went to New Zealand and if I stuck out with that course. I might not have even had the willpower to finish the course. I suppose, you know, that's why they always say that mothers know best and she really did know what was right for me at that time. So when you were sort of away overseas in New Zealand, were you doing aviation related things or was that more kind of the traditional gap years that we can think of? Yeah, no, there was no aviation whatsoever. I was working on a ski field um, as a lift operator for two seasons up at the snow. So that was great. Um, It did give me a chance to network with a lot of people from all over the world, um, from Canada, Japan, the UK, America. And I did actually meet quite a few pilots um, who were taking time off flying and working on the slopes as well, who were local Kiwis. And I think that was amazing as well, just to hear about how they go through their training and the differences between Australia. And it just opened up a lot of ideas, you know, possibly I could go to New Zealand to do my training if I didn't find anywhere in Australia that I thought would be suitable. Um, And yeah, that was great as well. Just like I said, networking with other people in the industry. So sort of touching on even the differences between flight training in New Zealand versus Australia. How does it really work in Australia? So in Australia, there are typically four different ways you can go about your flight training. Um, You can join the Air Force, uh, which I believe is a seven year lock in contract. Essentially, they pay you from the get go to do your flight training. And then, of course, you get your type rating on whichever aircraft you're basically linked to. Um, But in saying that, as much as that would be an incredible opportunity, it is quite difficult to get into the Air Force. The entry requirements are very strict and you do have to be super switched on, super motivated and very, very ready to commit your life for seven years, essentially. Um, Another way you can do it is through what I was going to do, which is a university degree. It's like, it's a 
an integrated course. So you do your subjects as well as other theory. For example, uh, aviation business management is a subject you might have to study. Um, and then you do your flying on set days. So they usually take around two to three years to complete those. And as well as uh, receiving your commercial license and instrument rating, you also then get a degree on top of that. Um, and the great part about that is that there's no upfront costs. It's all paid back over time on a hex debt, mm. which is great um, for those who unfortunately aren't able um, to fund flying upfront because we all know how expensive it is. <laughs> um, another way you can go about flying is a cadetship, which is what I did. Uh, there's only a few around. I think Rex Airlines have one and my airline shop have one. And I think in the recent years, Jetstar and Qantas have also bought out their cadetships. Um, but it is the same in the sense of a uni degree. You're still studying five days a week, um, but there's no degree attached to it. I received a diploma uh, and all of my training was flying and theory subjects, nothing else. Uh, and that was great. It was a great way to do it if you can get into one, because then the plus side, you do get a guaranteed job once you have finished your training. So it takes that pressure off you from having to go out into the wild with a mm -hmm. fresh CPL and try find work somewhere. Um, and then the fourth way you can go about flying in Australia uh, is just going to a private flying school and paying as you go, which allows you to work on the side if you do work full time. And whenever you get the time and the cash, you just hop in a plane and go. <laughs> it sounds just sort of upon hearing it initially very similar to how it works with within Canada I mean we have the Royal Canadian Air Force that is one avenue but what really intrigues me is the cadetships I don't think really on a wide scale we have them they're very um they're very select about how they work and I can only even think of one airline here that has one which is uh Air Inuit but yeah I'm always intrigued by these cadetships you see them <laughs> at least in Canada and other countries and I always think that just seems like the way to do it or at least to be if you're lucky enough to be able to get into it, it seems like maybe the sort of best of both worlds options of going through flight training. Yeah, of course. I think it was great. And when I was looking, I was so overwhelmed because there was just so many different options and I had no idea which was the best fit for me. Um, but I think this cadetship really did draw me in because that guaranteed job at the end of it was it was just a great opportunity to have not having to, like I said before, going out and trying to find this new job when you're still so, so early on in the industry that you don't have a lot of connections and you don't really know where hiring, how to go about getting your first job. So I do think it was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, however, I am very understanding that they're not common and it, they are difficult to come by. Mm hmm and I'm also thinking as well, um, just in terms of, I guess, yeah, looking for that first job. I know in the United States, the FAA has it where in order to have an ATPL, you have to have at least 1500 hours. And that's, there's no sort of, you can, I don't believe you can write your exams in advance. It's very much you have 1500 hours and now you can go be a first officer somewhere. In Canada, it's a little bit different. Is there a rule similar to that in Australia or is it just, I guess, once you're done your flight training, you become marketable? Yeah, basically, as soon as you have your commercial license, you then have the ticket to work in the industry. Um, an ATPL in Australia, uh, so you have your subjects, which are the seven 
subjects that you do. Um, and then you have the flight test. You can do your subjects and then not do your flight test for five, 10, 15 years down the track. Um, and that ATPL is only really required when you're going to become the captain in a multi-crew RPT environment. So for example, I have my ATPL subjects, but I don't have my ATPL because I'm only a first officer. Um, if my company were to upgrade me to the captain, then I would go and do my flight test. So in Canada, in order to get our ATPL, we have two written exams and there's no flight test. We have sort of our requirements and our breakdowns that we have to get in order for it to be officially official and able to be signed off. What are the seven subjects? Because it's probably kind of different than just the two exams we write. Wow. So ATPL subjects, we have air law, um, we have performance and loading, we have uh, systems knowledge, meteorology, flight planning, and human factors. And the last one is, oh gosh, I can't think of the last one. Remind me. <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> since I've even done them. I've forgotten about them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, in thinking about the, the two exams we write, all those subjects would be covered and they're just sort of 50 to 100 question exams that we have. Are, I guess in your case with the subjects, how long are these exams? Are they sort of a hundred questions each? Oh gosh, no, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, so for example, flight planning, which is uh, generally the most difficult one we have, that is a written exam and there's only 10 or 12 questions. However, not a written exam, sorry, but type in answer exam with about 10 or 12 questions. Two or three of the questions are five marker questions, which essentially I believe they make up almost 50% of your exam marks. So mm. if you, and it's a 70% pass mark for all of our exams, except for air law, which is an 80% pass mark. Um, whereas you have oh, navigation, that's the last one. I remembered it great. <laughs> whereas um, subjects like navigation, they're all multiple choice and you'd have probably 30, 35 questions. Okay. So it's a good, good variety sort of trying to make it as, I guess, I mean, it's clearly not clearly not easy. It's clearly challenging to do these exams, but a good variety <laughs> of like sort of having some ones that are uh, sort of longer written typed out answers or it's just multiple choice. So I guess a good bit of variation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are there special requirements for, I guess, the navigation? I guess sort of when you're doing flight planning, even just at sort of the PPL and CPL level, are there special considerations you need to make given sort of where you are in Australia and just being in Australia? Uh, I don't really think so. I think um, flight training all around the world, it seems pretty similar. You know, um, you get your medical, you get your security license, um, and then you learn as you go. For me, um, theory, I would sit in the classroom and I would learn what we needed to learn about our navigations coming up. But then it wasn't until actually sitting in the plane that you're truly learning and taking everything in and if you make mistakes they're the places that you learn from them and correct them I don't I don't think there's any real special requirements though even just sort of thinking from like a I guess a, a cross-country perspective I know in, when you're doing a cross-country flight uh, here even locally to me in Canada um, you have to always have a survival kit on board I'm guessing the survival kits are probably maybe quite a bit different than what we have here so with us, um, we have a designated remote area in Tasmania, which basically stretches from the middle of the state through the whole West Coast. And 
flying through that designated remote area, we need a survival kit. Um, the contents of that survival kit, it is 15 kilos and it lives in the back of our plane and it has everything you could possibly think of, um, water, whistles, uh, flares, um, a spare ELT, uh, blankets. <laughs> it's just, you know, all the first aid things as well. So we carry that because our flight path from Hobart, which is the south city in Tasmania, up to King Island, uh, which is one of the Bass Strait Islands we fly to that goes through that remote area. But otherwise, uh, our only requirement flying down here is life jackets on board for every flight mm. because all of our flights are over water. That's yeah, excellent point. And I'm I'm just even amazed at the idea of having, I mean, granted, this is at a commercial level operator, but just the idea of having an extra ELT on board, I think that's a, a very neat requirement to have. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely is. Now, what were some of the benefits of doing flight training in Moorabbin as compared to another part of Australia? For me, flying out of Moorabbin was fantastic. I'm so glad I did. Um, looking back when I first started, it was such an intimidating thought. Uh, Moorabbin is, I believe it's the second busiest airport in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, there's six or seven different flight schools at the airport and numerous takeoffs and landings as you can imagine with all the students training private pilots coming in corporate flying in and out um so it's extremely extremely busy so i think being exposed to that environment so early on in my training really was great because it was like being thrown in the deep end straight away mm. everything else from there was just easier um and following up on that like i said it was six or seven different flying schools so it was almost like a little village there was so many people you could talk to and network with and everyone was so different in their training as well. You had people who were starting from scratch and then you had corporate pilots flying in their citations coming in and out. And there was, it was a great way to network and talk to so many different people at so many different levels, I think. And it was just great. It was great exposure into the industry. You were never bored there. There was always something going on. It was great. And um, it was a controlled airspace airport as well we had a tower so I know that some people who would train um, at a non-controlled airport would then be too intimidated to fly into Moorabbin because they didn't have that experience um, with controlled airspace in a controlled aerodrome so for us again it was great we were in the deep end and everything else every other airport would fly to would be a lot easier than coming back to our home base um, and another great thing about Moorabbin was when we did start our IFR training, it had a lot of instrument approaches. And in that whole Melbourne basin area, there were four or five different airports that all had instrument approaches. So you didn't have to fly far to do what you needed to do in those navs, which was great as well. No, and just sort of hearing you describe Moorabbin, it sounds very similar to the initial flight training experience I had, which was also at a controlled airport, uh, an international airport. So your, the flight schools, you had the northern field that was just for you. And then occasionally you'd come to the South Field, which is where all the commercial and international traffic was coming. So yeah, never bored, always getting used to talking to a controller. Uh, yeah, that sounds very similar to my own experience. It's great. <laughs> I know often in the United States, you just have like control zones, basically all just touching up against each other. You can't really get into a lot of uncontrolled airspace within the US. In Canada, that is the exact opposite. You're almost in uncontrolled airspace more often than controlled zones. Is that the same in Australia or is it kind of depends on where you are? 
Yeah, I would say we're pretty similar to Canada. Our main cities are all in controlled airspace. However, um, you fly out of them a few miles and then it's all just class G airspace. It's not controlled at all. I think there's a big bubble around Launceston where I live. And then there's another big bubble around Hobart, which is the capital city of Tasmania, which is further south. But everywhere in between, they're not controlled at all. Now, presently, you work as a regional pilot for Sharp Airlines in Tasmania. What does a typical day look like in this role? Um, For us, our airline is very hands-on. We still have that general aviation sort of feel to us um, in the sense that we're not just pilots. We do so much more than that. Um, We... Well, I'll start. I get to work, I guess, and I walk into the flight planning room. I'll print off the weather. I'll do a flight plan um, and I'll just work out how much of the freight we can take depending on the weather that day and our uplift. Um, Once that's all done, I'll go and liaise with our ground staff and our check-in crew um, just to let them know this is how much fuel we're taking. This is how much freight we can take. And then once that's done, I will help them check in any passengers if they're running a little bit behind. And then I'll help our ground crew load our aircraft. Um, Once that's all done, I will bring the passengers out to the aircraft. I'll welcome them on board. I'll then make sure they're all seating in their correct seats. I'll do the emergency exit brief. I'll do a life jacket brief and then give them a big brief over the PA, basically, you know, all the uh, safety requirements on board. Um, we'll then fly over to wherever we're flying that day. We'll land and I'll disembark the passengers, walk them into the terminal. I'll then unload all their bags, take their bags out to the front of the terminal. Um, and then next lot of passengers come on board, do it all over again. Um, so in that sense, yeah, we are very hands-on. We do a lot, uh, but it's great because it makes, it makes you feel you're a part of the airline and that it's all worth it because you're helping out so much and you're not just sitting back and flying the aircraft. It's, yeah, it's, I don't know. For me, I really enjoy it because I do get to liaise and interact with the passengers more than I would if I was just sitting in a jet, not really communicating with them because that's what a flight attendant would do, I suppose, in a bigger airline. But for us, we have so many regular customers come on board that you get to that point where you're on first name basis and Mm you know everything about them you know that it was their nephew's birthday last week and that they're going into hip surgery next week and it is really nice being a part of that community um but some days are a lot bigger than others I mean tonight I'm just going to Flinders Island and coming back so two sectors nice cruisy day whereas on Friday I'm doing a six sector day which I'll be up at five and then back home probably around five thirty six. So that'll be a big day. But it, yeah, it just varies a lot with us, which is nice. <laughs> it's nice. Now, when you say you have like a six extra day, how long approximately are a lot of the legs you're doing sort of on average? So most of ours are quite short. They're all sub one hour, um, except for our flight between Hobart and Flinders, uh, sorry, Hobart and King Island, which was the flight I was talking about earlier where we go through that remote area. Um, That one on average is around an hour and five minutes. So that's our longest, but yeah, all our other flights, half an hour, 40 minutes maybe. So do you find that you have enough time to sort of, I mean, you sort of get to basically top of descent and then have to start thinking 
<laughs> yeah, pretty much. We really don't have any time in the cruise where we're just sitting back doing nothing. We're basically, as soon as we get to top of climb, we are switching over frequencies to get the weather. Um, we're briefing the passengers, switching over Melbourne Centre frequencies to talk to new controllers. It's, um, it's very full on. And if we are just sitting back doing nothing, then we know we're behind and that we've forgotten something. <laughs> because yeah it's very very full on on those short sectors which I think is great because it keeps you alert you're always doing something and you're not just sitting back bored you can never be bored in my job that's for sure it doesn't sound like you can be bored the fact that you get to have maybe that more personal relationship being part of that community as you said with just not just the company itself but also the passengers and the clients that you get to fly I think there's something to be said also about the self-reliance that you need to have about working uh, as a pilot in that role that you are in charge of all these different things you're being mindful of all these different things and having to be so on your game like it's it sounds like a very interesting way of doing sort of a regional flying job oh definitely it's um it's definitely character building that's for sure and yeah I I think this is a great start in aviation because one day when you do get to the dream job um in the left-hand seat of a jet you get to look back and say, wow, I really did it. I wouldn't say tough. It's not tough, but it's just rewarding. It's definitely a job where you will feel rewarded in the future, for sure. Now, given the fact that you're flying all throughout Tasmania, as someone that grew up in Ottawa, Tasmania is about as far away as I ever could have (laughs) imagined. It, It is truly sort of almost another planet. So what are some of the challenges and also some of the most rewarding aspects of flying throughout Tasmania? Um, Well, Tasmania has a very, very strong reputation about having some wild weather, which definitely, definitely prevails, especially in the months ending in ER, all that early summer stages, the winds, um, we get the roaring 40 winds across the Bass Strait Islands. So we're facing mean wind strengths of 45 kilometres an hour, gusts up to 55, 60 kilometres an hour, sometimes all crosswind as well. So that always is a challenge flying into those aerodromes when the weather's like that. But um, it is, it's good fun because it exposes you to those situations early on. So you're almost raised in the industry knowing how to deal with them. Um, but in saying that, on the, on the contrary, flying in Tasmania is just stunning. It's such a small state. So you're always flying over the coast or over mount over mountains it's um there's no flat parts of tassie so there's always something to look out the window and see and that even though i'm flying the same three or four routes every single day there's always something new that i'll see out the window because it's just that vast and remote and rugged that it it has so much to offer and especially on days where it's sunny like today Um, you really get to appreciate your own backyard and where we live and how lucky we are that when we're flying, it's not just flat desert for miles and miles and miles. It's just beauty. (laughs) It really is. No, it's one of those things where just even sort of seeing Tasmania in the background, I mean, that's what vacation photos look like where I'm from. (laughs) And the fact that that just gets to be sort of a regular part of your day, that's just your backyard, as you said. I mean, how wonderful would that be? And yeah, the same five, six legs every one of them would be a little bit different and I mean, different types of day, different types of weather. It would just be, yeah, an adventure every single time. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, um, it's a great ground for continual learning. Like, like I said, even though we only have a few different routes, 
every time is different. There has not been two of the same days I've had in almost three years. It's great. <laughs> now, a previous guest of ours actually also flies a metro. Um, he flies it through northern Canada and so deals with the sort of minus 40 and extreme cold. You, on the other hand, also fly the metro, but more on, I would say, the sort of plus 30 Celsius and the exact opposite of northern Canada. So what maybe are some considerations made for flying a metro through such a warm climate? For us, our biggest downfall in the metro is definitely our performance, um, as you can imagine, um, hot and heavy. <laughs> so luckily here in Tasmania, it is rare to get weather in the 30 degrees Celsius days um, in Melbourne. However, uh, when we do fly to Melbourne, that's definitely quite prevalent. However, down here, 25 to 29 degrees is usually our average um, temperature for summer, which it still does impact our performance um, as we struggle sometimes to get all of our overwhelming freight on board because of the weather. So um, I'm not sure if uh, metros in Canada have Cowie, but we definitely have it um, down here in Tassie, which it's basically a water methanol mix that um, we have in the aircraft and it gets injected into the engine inlet, inlets almost like a spray nozzle. Um, and that we use on our takeoff, which enhances our performance. Um, for example, if we were to take off on King Island on a 30 degree day and we didn't use Cowie, um, I'm pretty sure from memory, our maximum uplift is 6.7 tonne. However, if we are using Cowie, I think we can get close to 7.1 tonne. So there is quite a big difference in how much we can take when we use it. Um, and for us, we would not survive without it. So it is great that we do have that opportunity because it allows us to keep all of our essential service freight moving, even on those really, really hot days. So I admit, I don't know much about sort of the uh, metro operations here in Canada. I know that we definitely have to be mindful um, more so of sort of minimum fuel temperatures, um, as opposed to, I guess, the other end of that being more maximum temperatures. Uh, the city that I live in, we get to have a very large variation. It's the plus 40 summers and the minus 40 winters. Um, less so in the last few years when it's been getting a bit warmer and it's now closer to minus 30. But yeah, you definitely notice how your aircraft's performance changes over the course of the seasons um, from the first time you take off in the sort of cold winter flying in a Cessna 150, you're just rocketing along, which is <laughs> so not the speed of the 150. Yeah, no, it's definitely the same with us. I know that in winter on a nice, beautiful, clear morning, we'll get an amazing climb performance. And then in summer, sometimes we're struggling to meet 500 feet per minute once we're through transitions. It's, um, yeah, you, you really don't realise until you have it happen and you're like, oh, my goodness, this girl does not want to climb. <laughs> now, this is a very broad question and... I'm mindful that it has been a very challenging few years for Australia, but how did COVID-19 impact aviation in Australia? Uh, well, I'm sure it would have been similar to Canada. Um, the impacts of COVID-19 were, they were horrible. It was so awful and heartbreaking seeing so many planes grounded and just, it's not moving. It was, yeah, it was definitely a tough year. Uh, sorry, tough two years, I should say. My gosh, that's gone quick. <laughs> Um, for us, Australia, we unfortunately lost one of our regional airlines, which was Tiger Airways. Um, they folded, which was really, really sad because that left 
all the pilots, all the ground staff, the flight attendants, the engineers, everyone just jobless, just overnight. I, it was so heartbreaking. I did have a few friends that worked for Tiger and to me, when I woke up and saw that news, I, I couldn't believe it. I did not think that the impact of COVID would be that severe, that we would lose an airline. Um, and not just Tiger, but so many other airlines as well, Qantas, Jetstar, Virgin, just mass, mass crew cutting, which was really horrible. Um, my mum, she did lose her job. Uh, so, you know, after being with an airline for 27 years, just to wake up one morning and then basically say, yeah, sorry, you know, we don't really have room for you here anymore. It was definitely heartbreaking and that really hit close to home. And it, it was really sad because it's hard to stay motivated in an industry where you wake up and it just looks like it's slowly dying and there's no signs of recovery. Um, and I did, I felt really, really, really bad for everyone around me that was losing their jobs because we are as an airline that runs the essential services for Flinders Island and King Island. We were still so busy. We really did not lose any work, which I was grateful for. But like I said, at the same time, I felt really guilty that I was still flying, but so many of my friends were not. Um, so for Sharp Airlines, we not only were we still so busy because Flinders Island and King Island, um, they rely on us for essential services, all their groceries, their online shopping. We also gained a new route. So the Tasmanian government, they affiliated with Sharp Airlines and created a new route from Hobart direct to King Island and Hobart direct to Flinders Island, which had never been done before. Basically, um, in the past, if someone from Hobart wanted to travel to the islands, they would have to drive up to Launceston, which is a two and a half hour drive, and then fly to the islands. So for that, that really stimulated Tasmania's economy and tourism. And we still have that um, route now. It was only meant to be a three-month trial, but it's been so successful that we've had it for almost 18 months now, which is fantastic. Mm. So I think Sharp have benefited from COVID, I would like to say, um, which is, yeah, we've been super lucky. We've hired so many new people as well, which is great. And I think that we're just growing from this. But, um, you know, now, what are we, 2022, I think aviation slowly is rebuilding itself. There's been so many new jobs with the major airlines advertised in the past few weeks. And I am quite optimistic that from here on, things will be looking bright and there will be a bright future. And yeah, we'll rebuild for sure. We have to, right? <laughs> no, I'm glad to hear you say that because even sort of just mindful of what Canadian aviation is looking like right now. In the last couple of weeks, it's really started to seem like it's picking back up. So I'm glad to hear that sort of very similarly to Canada, that it's starting again. We're starting to see the movement that was uh, sort of commonplace in 2019. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people are still always going to want to travel. I think there's only going to be a small minority of the population that will be deterred from this virus that won't want to travel. But I think, well, I like to think anyway, that our young generation, especially, I mean, so many of the young adults that graduated high school and didn't get to have their fun gap year or go traveling with their friends before they start university like they are going to be ones who are hungrier than ever to want to get out and explore and I think that's really going to drive everything because everyone will want to be getting out and traveling and I mean we've had what cabin fever for three years now 
So I, yeah, like I said, I'm optimistic that it's going to pick back up again and it will get to the capacity it was soon. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And even sort of mindful of the, the innovations that different airlines and groups have had to make over the last couple of years, uh, noting sort of the new routes that you have, do you foresee them staying for the future? Or are they just going to be part of the sharp routes now? Or is that just a, an innovation that was essential during the last 18 months, but might peter on out over the next year or so? Well, I, I do think that they are now here for good. Um, like I said earlier, for people down south to get to the islands, they had to drive up to Launceston. And our flight numbers are an example of that. I can't remember a last time we had anything less than half full. It's mm. always full out of Hobart, which is great. So many tourists that have never, ever been to the islands before and it's in their own state. It's astounding. And so many people are flying into Hobart from the mainland and then doing a little side trip to the islands whilst they're down in Tasmania exploring. And yeah, I definitely think it's going to stay from now on. It's pretty fantastic. The numbers we're getting, which is, yeah, it's great. Well, I'm very happy to hear that aviation is alive and well in Tasmania. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's pretty great now. I'm happy. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Well, my friend is probably going to kill me for this. But um, one of my really close friends, Shelby Tillett, she, her and I met on Instagram um, as a lot of aviation friendships form. (laughs) She was um, studying her cadetship with Virgin Australia um, to become a second officer on the 777s. And we were sort of going through our training at the same time. So we, you know, we were sharing notes. We became close over that. And it was really, really great. Um, And then she finished her cadetship and received a Brisbane base, which was her hometown. So she was very fortunate. Um, and unfortunately, the timing was just really, really awful because COVID hit very soon after she started flying with Virgin. Um, and she lost her job along with all of the other classmates she had. And then so many other pilots at Virgin as well that had been in the, in the company for so long. Um, But, you know, she had this drive and this tenacity where she didn't let that impact her motivation and her love and passion for the industry. So she basically packed up her bags and went driving around the country, handing her resume into any any, um, small flying school or just a regional operator she could find. And she was doing this for months before she found a job. And, you know, there were times where she was really close to giving up but she didn't and it all paid off. She got a job with um, Avier, which is in Kununurra, the top end of Australia. Um, she started ground crewing and did a season ground crewing and helping out where needed helping, loading aircraft, um, paperwork. And then they put her in the air van um, for a few months. And now she's just been checked to line in the caravan. Um, so she's doing mail runs and she's doing scenic flights up there in a turbine aircraft, single pilot. Um, and I'm pretty sure she's only one of 12 of her classmates that are still actually flying at the moment. And, you know, I just find her so inspiring that she didn't give up. And when she was at her lowest point, she just kept fighting and found a job where so many people didn't. Um, and yeah, she's just incredible. Um, I look up to her so much. Well, I guess one of those things that's uh, with social media is that you are able to connect with peers in aviation from all over the world, all over your own country. And it can be so incredibly rewarding to 
friendships and connections that you do make through that and how lucky are you to have gotten to meet her through social media and have her someone to look up to she she sounds amazing yeah she's a rock star she's definitely been there for me when I've had some down days um and yeah we're we're just bonded now for life I think <laughs> just even hearing her story I'll have to think back on rather going forward on the days that I find super challenging just think like look if this if this very nice woman in another part of the world can do this like so can you so yeah, yeah. exactly right we're all in it together aren't we mm-hmm now, how did or did not having a mentor impact your early experiences in aviation? Um, well, like I said, I ground crewed for a helicopter company um, for a few years before starting my training. And although I didn't have a direct guidance or direct mentor, the uh, helicopter pilots that I worked alongside with, they were so fantastic in trying to point me in the right direction on how to start my, this was before I found out about the cadetship on how to start my career. And they always took the time to any questions I had about anything aviation related. They always took the time to help me out, help me figure out the answers, you know, explain to me why this is this and that's that. Um, And they would always take me up for flights in the chopper whenever they could. And they were just, I think because my passion shone through, they were just so happy that there was someone working in the company who actually saw flying as a possible career and it was just yeah I think that was really fantastic and I don't think I honestly don't think not having that I how do I word it properly if I didn't have that job I I don't think that I would be where I am today because those boys really pushed me to where I am and just they really opened my eyes to the industry and it wasn't only the great things as well it was you know the industry is going to be tough and you do need to work hard and you do need to be passionate because it's not all going to come easy and I definitely think they helped instill that drive into me that you need to have that hard work ethic otherwise it's not going to come to you on a silver platter you know you've got to go out and and chase it I can't agree more it is sort of having someone who sort of showcases the industry but I think even more importantly reminds you that it's very cool it's also a lot of hard work and you have to really want it I'm, I'm glad that you had someone so early on into I guess that still at a very fundamental point in your aviation before you'd even started sort of remind you like this this is going to be tough it's very rewarding but it's it's a lot of work so I how lucky are you to have had that heads up yeah it was it was fantastic they were they were great guys now do you have a dream job within aviation and if so what is it I would say that alongside many Australian pilots, um, Qantas is definitely the pinnacle of aviation in Australia. And more so for me, because like I mentioned earlier, my mum worked for Qantas. Um, It was always a dream of ours to wear the uniform together and um, have her on a flight of mine. Um, Unfortunately, that dream can no longer be a reality, but it hasn't stopped my drive to really want to work for Qantas. I know that um, traveling overseas as a child, whenever we would sort of get to that last leg of the trip where we would hop on the flying route to come back to Australia, it was just like this, this feeling of home and relief and that I'm, I'm safe and I'm going to get home in one piece. And I just, oh, I can't really describe the feeling of how bad I really want to work for Qantas. It's just, it's more than just a job. It's, honestly 
just this family sort of um, feeling you get. It's a bit overwhelming, but it's also very special. And to me, I don't think any other job in aviation will ever quite come close. I don't think I'll ever settle for another job. I'll keep pushing and pushing until I get into a seat in the flying room, that's for sure. Now, oftentimes when I ask those questions of guests, they are so sort of still interested in the industry at large that they can't necessarily pinpoint a job. And so for you to be able to say so clearly, this is what I want and no holds barred, I'm going for it. I, I commend you on your, your drive and your passion. And it is very easy to find. I think it's very easy to find that one dream job or at least a selection of jobs that would all be the be all end all. But it's to identify it and then be able to sort of commit to making that happen. I commend you on that because I, I know how many obstacles are in the way just with pointing to that job. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's definitely a stretch from where I am now, but you know, I'm only 24. Well, hopefully that's young enough to be able to keep dreaming big, but I yeah, there might be a there probably not might, there probably will be quite a few jobs between now and then, but I know that when I get there it'll make it'll make it worth it. It'll be it'll be so rewarding and I know that my mom and dad will both be so proud of me when that day comes. I'm 24, so I can tell you it is not too late. <laughs> and oh, that's <yeah>. good. <laughs> yes. I need this support. <laughs> 24 is not too old, even though it can feel like that sometimes. Um, oh, definitely. But I think as well, you sort of touch on it's this like it's coming home. It's familial. It's just a whole environment. It sounds like really Qantas uh, for pilots in Australia. It's it's very much a lifestyle that comes with working. Uh, not just a lifestyle in terms of the routine, but to sort of be a part of that brand and that company. It's it's uh, more than just a job. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, Qantas is essentially, it's a whole brand. It is elite. Um, and it's just, I think for a lot of a lot of pilots, Qantas is the be-all end all. <laughs> Which I, I guess it could be um, a negative because you should be grateful to get a job in aviation. It doesn't matter what airline it's for. Mm. You should just be grateful to fly, I suppose. But I mean, dream big, dream big, I say. Now, as someone who clearly loves aviation, has it as a passion, eats, sleeps and thinks all about aviation, what are some activities you enjoy outside of aviation? Outside of aviation, outside of our aviation household, what do we love to do? Well, um, my partner and I, we are big outdoorsy people, which I think is so great that we live in Tasmania because you can't be indoors in Tassie. Like I said, there's almost 3,000 mountains in this tiny little state. Um, so on our days off, we go hiking, we go exploring, um, big walks, whether they're overnight or just day trips. We don't like staying at home. We like venturing off and we try. We know we're not going to be in Tasmania forever. Our family is back on the mainland in Melbourne. So we are taking this opportunity to basically be Dora the Explorer and just go everywhere, see everything. And it's it's been fantastic so far. We've been here for two and a half years and we've already seen so much of this state. But the more we see, the more we realise how much more there is to still see. Um, so we have a little list um, on my laptop and we're slowly ticking it all off, which we're getting there, but we work so much that we don't always find the time. But definitely a lot a lot more we want to do down here and has there been one trip in particular so far that you've gone on that was just absolutely amazing 
I think for us, um, we did a hike down south on the Tasman Peninsula called the Three Capes Hike, and it was our first overnight hiking experience. So we hiked for four days and three nights along a real rugged, pristine coastline down south. And, you know, just waking up every morning in these huts, having your coffee, watching the sunrise, and then putting on your pack and just walking for 20, 25 kilometers a day, not knowing what you're going to see or where you're going to end up. That was just amazing. And I think we got the bug from that. <laughs> Definitely. I've say you've sold me on Australia, but more so you sold me on Tasmania. So I'll, once all this is over, I look forward to uh, finally getting to go. Oh, yeah. I feel like such a little Tasmanian poster girl at the moment. Like I'm such an advocate for this state. It is so beautiful. And I had never, well, I had been to Tasmania before, but, you know, when you're little and you don't really remember much and coming down here now in my early adulthood, I'm, oh, I can see why people move here and then stay here. It is so beautiful. I love it. (laughs) Now, what advice did you have for someone considering a career in aviation? Oh, look, I think we all know, but the biggest, biggest must is you need to make sure that you want this because aviation is such a challenging and demanding industry. And there are going to be days for sure where you're so disheartened, whether it's failing an exam or someone else getting a command upgrade before you. And I just really think that if you make sure that you have that passion then everything else in the industry is going to be okay. Like there will be better days, but you can't come into this job and say, you know, you have jobs that people take up after high school because they don't really know what they want to do. So they're trying to figure it out. It's like aviation cannot be that middle ground. Like you need to come into this industry and know that it is what you want to do for the rest of your life you can't half-ass it, I would say, in a sense. Um, But it is, it's the best industry ever. I mean, you get to meet so many different people. You're flying around, whether it's your own country or one day the world. Who, Who couldn't want that? I think it's the most incredible industry you could ever be in. And you're, you know, you're surrounded by people who share that passion, like we were talking about before. Um, But, you know, in saying that, I would think that I wish... I had more of a, like I said, the helicopter pilots I worked with, they were great because they helped me where I needed helping, but I still wish I had more guidance on how to start training. It's just, you know, you wake up one day and you say, oh, I want to start flying, but it's like, well, how? It's so overwhelming. So I think for someone coming into aviation, the most important thing you can do is just go to your local flying school and, you know, chat to the instructors, chat to the students and just network with as many different people as you can and do as much research as you can to find the right path for you. Because like I said, I'm so glad and grateful I did this cadetship, but this might not be the right path for someone else. And you really need to figure that out before you start. (laughs) Otherwise you want to get the most out of it. Um, And yeah, I really think that if you have that passion, you have that drive and you want to do it, you can do it. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone put you down and just go for it. Yeah, no, we've talked before on our show about how aviation is almost unrivaled in terms of passion. It's not something, I mean, you might find yourself coming upon aviation one day and going, oh, I didn't know this existed and now I'm really into it. But it's not something you work your way through if you're only a little bit into it if you're kind of unsure it demands that you need to be fully committed to it yeah exactly right 
Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? I think that my favorite memory from my career so far would definitely, definitely be, I think it was two years ago, I was flying back into Lonnie, uh, my home base from King Island, and it was at night. Uh, and we were probably 10 miles from the aerodrome and the tower controller um, came over the radio and said to us that he's just changed the ATIS because it had started snowing. Um, and snow in Tasmania, we get it on the highlands and the high up mountains. However, you never get it in the towns. Um, and so we were on final on the ILS and there was just white snowflakes beaming on our windscreen and we were just like, is this happening? Is this snow? Um, and by the time we landed and taxied back to the hangar, I hopped out and it was just complete whiteout. There was snow everywhere to the point where I had to get my partner to come and pick me up because I couldn't drive home. The roads were completely snowed on. Um, and then we went to bed that night and we woke up at probably two or three in the morning and our, we live uh, in town. At this point, we lived sort of uh, at the bottom of town. It was almost in a little valley and our balcony was covered in snow. Um, it was insane. The whole town was covered in snow and then our uh, driveway was iced over. So I had to slide down my driveway on my butt to be able to get to the bottom to then hitch a ride to work. And the airport was closed the next morning for half of the day because it was covered in snow. And, you know, I guess a Canadian like yourself is probably like, oh yeah, ops normal, that's daily sort of routine. But for us, um, I'm pretty sure they said it was a once in a lifetime freak event and don't ever expect to see it like that again because it was just unheard of for Tasmania. Like, sure, we get cold, but we don't get that cold where there's snow in the town and people are having to dig out their cars and driveways. And being able to fly in um, on the ILS that night before in the snow was just, I don't think I'm ever going to experience that again, unless I come and work in Canada. But it was pretty amazing for Australia. I've lived in climates where it does not snow regularly. And when it does snow, it is truly magical. You see adults, children, everyone's out just wanting to interact with it. It's, it's so novel. So I, yes, even though I normally train with snow, I can appreciate that moment of sort of that, that magic of having a snowfall when you're not supposed to, it's not supposed to happen. You don't really see it regularly. Trust me, I, I can appreciate sort of what that would be like. It's, it is very fun. Uh, oh, it I will, was, it was a winter wonderland. I do have to laugh about not being able to drive home. Um, <laughs> But uh, I mean, otherwise, weak Australian. <laughs> you're just not used to it, right? Oh gosh, no! I would have spun out for sure. <laughs> it, I'm just yeah, even thinking of the visual of it. No, it would have just been incredible. So yeah, I mean, once in a lifetime event to have been a part of, and hey, to have flown in it, how much more cool is that? Pretty cool, that's for sure. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, so my biggest social media platform would probably be Instagram. I'm forever posting photos of cute dogs we have on our flights and um, photos out the cockpit window. So I guess if that's your thing, <laughs> um, my username is Tara Merha. So T-A-R-A-M-R-H-A-R. 
We will be sure to have that link in the episode description for our listeners. Tara Murhar, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no, Laura, thank you so much. I'm so glad we did this. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.